Welcome to the Keeping Things Alive podcast out of Buffalo, New York. My name is Laura Evans, and I'm the author of Silent Seasons, Chasing Sustainability Through the Law. I'm also a natural resources planner, an active environmental lawyer, animal lover, and gardener. John Washington co-creates the podcast with me. John is an organizer, political trainer and educator, and Afrofuturist. The Keeping Things Alive podcast is here to explore the opportunities and challenges as we all live together on this beautiful, harsh, and interconnected planet Earth. Okay, we're here with another episode of the Keeping Things Alive podcast, and I'm here with John Washington. Hi, John. Hi, Laura and audience. How are you doing today? Doing great. Um, I'm excited because this week is the launch week for my book, Silent Seasons. Yay! So it's been a long time coming, um, basically about a year. Air horns! Yay! And so, yeah, today is Tuesday, October 4th. And I would say, yeah, in 2022, and about this time last year is when I started uh, talking about writing this book and signing up for the Book Creators Program. And now I have a book published by New Degree Press, and it's really exciting. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about it and sort of your role in helping me write the book. And then I wanted to, yeah, just talk a little bit more about it and also read the introduction of Silent Seasons for this podcast. So, yeah, John, what did you think of the book? And well, I guess before that, like, what has been your role in helping me write it? Uh, I guess I've been uh, hopefully a support person to uh, help you with different aspects of the book that were hard to bounce ideas off of, to generally talk about the book. And then I think to give some very specific ideas in places where I felt that they would be meaningful without trying to be too influential of like what you actually wrote, but just saying like, this is what I think the world needs to hear from Laura Evans. Yeah, so what, I have a lot of questions there. Um, I guess what were the hardest parts of writing the book, even for me? <laughs> like, what did you really help me uh, I think it's very difficult, and this is just a thing we should probably do a whole episode about, but the culture of work um, and creating time and space to do things while you're doing jobs and domestic labor and balancing all of those things. Um, and then I think it takes a certain mindset. Um, I definitely, you know, have been reading books and loved reading and been pushed to read a lot, but to just watch the process. I also think for the first two thirds of the process, not really have, having ever experienced the process right. and not knowing how long and strenuous. And I think in the hard, like in any process, you can kind of get through the hard parts if you know how long they're going to take and like what they're going to be. But you didn't really know what the hard parts were until like looking back and we still even are in this process. And, and so I think that um it's really like anything it's about experience and practice so doing something without experience practice and an understanding of like the context that you're in in each phase and what's important and what's not and you know everybody's going to tell you that everything's always important and you as a real person living a real life you know have to make some determinations about the ebbs and flows of your energy and ability and capacity 
Um, and I feel like that's why people like sports and running and certain things because it's like you can do something really intense if you know it's going to end. And for you, this process uh, has been a really powerful learning experience. It's been a powerful learning experience for me. But I think like everyone in America in 2022, you've always got to do at least two things. You've always mm. at least got to take care of your home, do your job, and then figure out how to do what you're passionate about. And I think you did an amazing job of that. But I know that that was also very difficult. And it's why everybody's got a book in their head but mm -hmm. but very few people can actually write them and then publish them and then really put them out in the world yeah i thank you for saying all of that i i definitely went about writing the book by getting up early every single morning and then working on the weekends but i have found that as this like phase change into like now the book is here and it is about sharing it um, it is a little bit harder to just get up in the morning and do that part. So, yeah, I've learned a lot about, yeah, the process and never having gone through it before. And, yeah, you learn a lot about yourself, too, because I think, you know, there are some people who sharing things and talking about themselves is no problem at all. And then the writing is the hard part. And for me, it's the other way around. So, yeah, I really appreciate all that you've done to be patient with me, too. What... um what has resonated with you about the book, like the topic area and I mean, how it connects to your own life and work? Well, I think that, um, you know, in my work um, and just in my life, I've, I've always tried to break down and make concepts real for people because I believe academia is a strategy by wealthy and powerful people to separate most people from information and to and to really even emotionally and intellectually separate people who have information from like most people and i think that your book uh stylistically does a really amazing job of what we train people to do in speeches and public speaking of what we do in political education which is centering a personal story because um, people will follow someone through their personal story through any information. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that the fact that the information you provide also your experience validates your lessons mm -hmm. and, and it validates them in a way that that cannot, in my mind, be invalidated because it is about what you experienced, what you observed. Um, and I think that academia tries to use other people to prove points in a very manipulative way that I think people are just burned out of. Like we all know if there's a report, mm -hmm. there's an angle, there's an agenda. And I think you have one, but it's also explicit. It's real. And it's born of like, Oh, I think anybody who reads your book can think, Oh, I've had bad jobs. I've, I've been a part of systems where when I went into them, I had all this hope. And then when I actually like, we've all had those experiences and I think people can powerfully identify, um, you know, with jobs, with education, with their fathers and, mm -hmm. and parents and communities, you know, trying to teach them things. And the hard lesson you learn that a lot of it's hype, you know, mm -hmm. and then the specificity that you follow through with those experiences. So you don't write this, you know, as a lawyer trying to prove to the world that you have the right answer. You write it as a person who's been struggling through something. And I think that everyone in 2022 can identify with that in lots of ways and re will remember the information uh, and the practical. And another thing I'll just say is in, in the environmental world, there is a lot of like high on the hill finger wagging or society needs to do this and everybody needs to do that. And I think that you're very clear that taking care of yourself 
telling your personal story, talking about your experiences with other people, you know, making good food for yourself. Like all of these things are what allow us to have the mental health and capacity to actually think about and really be take seriously the kind of system changes that we need to have. And I think that's a very rare message right now. I think everybody else is trying to figure out how to tell everybody else what to do. And I think there's a powerful message in your book about trying, struggling, learning, and also going within yourself and doing a lot of small things um, that can give you a more material relationship to your life and environment um, that I think a lot of other people are, are ignoring and I think really will resonate with people who are, who are just like looking for something to do tomorrow, which mm. I think most people are looking for when they're asking for information about the environment and the world around them. It's like not as much, what does this whole thing mean? It's like, well, what do I do tomorrow? Mm-hmm. What do I do when I go to the supermarket? What do I do when I get off of work? Um, and I think that this book has a lot, it's, it's very relatable. Thank you. Yeah, that was my number one intention. So I feel good about what you just said. Yeah, I definitely want it to be relatable and accessible. And I do want people to learn from my own story about, yeah, how environmental laws are set up in the United States and how, yeah, sort of their origin stories as well as my own. And then, yeah, um, really giving people some information, but in a way that they will actually remember and will actually read it. So I'm really happy about a lot of the feedback I'm getting with like, oh, it reads like a detective novel or, oh, I like it. My only complaint is it ended too quickly. Like I'm, I'm really, I love that it's short. So yeah, I really do want people to uh, kind of immerse themselves in it and yeah, see things from my perspective because the more I learn and the more I meet people, the more I realize that what I've seen and done is very different from most people, like all people. <laughs> so yeah, I, um, I really appreciate that. Is there any other uh, parting thoughts or anything? I'm gonna turn into yeah, reading the introduction. I can I can press pause first <laughs> before I just launch into that. But yeah, I I'm excited to celebrate with you. I'm really grateful for everything that you've done to bring this book to life too. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, I would just uh, encourage everybody listening that you know your story means something, and I think the less you think it means the more it might mean to someone because there are just sets of stories that get told over and over and over again and a lot of people who are often discouraged from sharing their story when all of our mosaic of stories to me add up to like what this world really means and i think that uh you've taken a courageous step to do that and i appreciate that and i hope it inspires more people to do the same thanks john Okay, so here is the introduction to Silent Seasons by Laura Evans. And the opening quote is from Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, 1962. There is still very limited awareness of the nature of the threat. This is an era of specialists, each of whom sees his own problem and is unaware of or intolerant of the larger frame into which it fits. It is also an era dominated by industry in which the right to make a dollar at whatever cost is seldom challenged. The moments in my life that shatter my naive beliefs are important turning points that stay with me forever. One day, walking down the halls with my third grade class in 1993, I got into an intense argument with my classmate, Chris, about the existence of Santa Claus. 
This was not the first time that I desperately tried to explain that the classic children's book, The Polar Express, proved everything, because if you stopped believing in Santa, you could no longer hear the bell anymore. I also described the evidence consisting of half-eaten cookies and carrots remaining on my family's fireplace Christmas morning after my brother, sister, and I left them out as a snack for him and his reindeer the night before. Chris was not convinced. <clears throat> when I got home from school and complained to my mom about my classmates' ignorance about Santa, my mom picked up on my deep level of frustration, felt bad that I was arguing for a lie, and told me the truth. She and all the adults in my life were in on the worldwide Santa scheme. I remember that moment of truth in my parents' seafoam green bedroom so vividly because it felt like my entire reality had shattered and I didn't know what was real anymore. Despite being a relatively quiet and polite child, I rage cried at my mom. I felt embarrassed for defending Santa to my peers and angry that such a large piece of what I knew to be true in the world was a lie created by adults. Although I eventually moved past my rage, Santa was my first major reality check that things are not always what they seem, or what parents, teachers, movies, and commercials tell you. Shattering my environmental law reality. Much like learning about the great Santa lie as a third grader, I will never forget my 2009 field trip to Baytown, Texas, with the University of Texas School of Law and Austin's Environmental Law Clinic, where I first learned about the realities of environmental injustice. I was so excited to go on this field trip because after three years of studying environmental law and policy, it was the first time I would be doing real environmental attorney work. It's laughable now, but before this trip, I had many misperceptions about what being an environmental attorney would be like. I actually thought the fossil fuel and chemical corporations would want to follow environmental laws, protect their workers, and protect the surrounding communities from pollution. Instead, my professor drove me and the other clinic students around Baytown and Houston so we could witness the miles and miles of oil refineries and chemical manufacturing facilities. She introduced us to families who worked for fossil fuel companies and were all sick with cancer, but stayed silent because they were afraid to stand up to their employers and lose their jobs. We met with air pollution activists fighting an uphill battle to move an elementary school away from the oil refineries. We covered our mouths and noses in response to the putrid smells being pumped out of the countless smokestacks. I had a low-grade headache the entire trip. I can still picture the endless smokestacks, flares, chemical vats, and piles of industrial waste called petrocoke that seemed to stretch out to the ends of the earth. I remember witnessing so many communities ravaged by both poverty and pollution. The large-scale climate, energy, and environmental injustice on such a massive scale in Baytown and Houston smacked me in the face. It awakened me to the overwhelming devastation caused by the production and consumption of fossil fuel energy and how wrong I was to think any sustainable method existed in these activities. That trip put me on my current path of adjusting my lifestyle and work to learn and practice how our society can move forward in more sustainable ways. My sustainability-seeking path has been winding, jarring, and full of job changes. I've had to grapple with the reality that my career choice to work in environmental law-related spaces signed me up for a much bigger assignment than I could have ever imagined. I've struggled with what food to eat, which beauty products to buy, and which substances to clean my bathroom with, given what I know about all of the chemicals in our food, water, and everyday household products. Although I have joined organizations and had many conversations with others who identify as environmentalists and environmental justice organizers, I've often been alone on this sustainability roller coaster, and it is past time to bring other people along for the ride. I've been mostly silent about what I've witnessed and learned because I've been scared, overwhelmed, and busy. I'm also forced to stay silent about pieces of my story because they happened while I was practicing law on behalf of a client. 
These lawyer confidentiality rules will be in place for my entire life. This book is my attempt at breaking my silence, where I can, to share the sustainability lessons I have learned. I want to take my own sustainability advice and better communicate, cooperate, and collaborate with others. What is sustainability? To answer this question, I did not consult with any other sources beyond my own brain, heart, gut, and soul. I know corporations, governments, and environmentalists use many definitions, but I am avoiding all of their language on the topic because I have not seen them practice what I believe to be sustainability. Sustainability is the practice of working with the Earth's systems, physics, people, plants, animals, information, technology, and all other resources to support life on this Earth for current and future generations of people, plants, animals, and the Earth itself. Information and reports do not equal sustainability. An abundance of information and reports indicate that humanity and the Earth are suffering through a toxic and dysfunctional relationship that is hundreds of years in the making. Wildfires in the western United States destroy homes, ancient trees, and countless animals at increasing levels of intensity every year. Sea level rise is predicted to engulf coastal cities like Miami and New Orleans in the coming decades. The global species extinction rate is at an all-time high. In December 2021, a monster tornado, surrounded by smaller tornadoes, tore through the middle of the U.S., killing almost 100 people while leaving homes and factories behind in the form of matchsticks. A large number of people have been worried about environmental problems for decades, and that number of concerned scientists, bureaucrats, and citizens is increasing by the day. There has been an uptick in people, and youth in particular, sounding the alarm of a global climate emergency. In a 2020 survey from the Pew Research Center, 60% of Americans said global climate change is a major threat to the country, up from 44% in 2009. Unfortunately, after a city declares a climate emergency or a state passes a new law requiring 100% green energy by a certain date, no sustainable implementation plan or adequate capacity, including funding, is in place to reach these lofty goals. Governments react to environmental disasters with band-aids they could have prepared for and maybe even prevented years ago. For people who want to do something about what is happening to the earth and its people, the inability to make change is devastating. Everyday people are left to hope and pray that something will be done without any means of participating in the process of changing themselves. It is insulting to be told to recycle more, turn my lights off, bike in the winter, and spend money I don't have on an electric car is the only way to do my part in making the earth a better place when the actual solutions require systemic change on industrial scales outside of any one person's control. The current sustainability approaches are not true solutions for many reasons. Most so-called solutions still operate within the same frameworks that have not worked for decades, beginning with the separation of humans from nature, followed by cutting up nature into smaller parts without considering the bigger picture. It's terrifying that the current solutions are being created and led by the same companies and policymakers who have been making the problem worse for decades. They continue to distract us, scare us, and tell us we have no control over what is happening. Most people absorb the message, feel powerless, and check out. Another problem with current attempts at sustainability is that our society pushes technology-based solutions without thorough consideration of what it will take to make the technology, how best to maintain it, and how to safely reuse or dispose of the waste when it runs its course. 
For example, as explained by Pratima Desai and Mai Nugent in their July 1, 2021 article for Routers, we have seen a huge increase in electric car production and use, but no one knows how to obtain enough lithium, cobalt, and nickel from the earth to make all of the vehicles we want and need. The batteries in electric cars are not designed to be recycled, and although scientists are scrambling on how to change that, as Ian Morse explains in his May 20, 2021 article in Science, no sustainable solution exists. This is much like nuclear energy production, where despite decades of research, there is no safer permanent way to dispose of nuclear waste. It is also frustrating that corporations and governments keep providing us consumers with green, natural, and renewable products that are less harsh on the earth and human bodies, but they are not sustainable on the necessary scale. For a price, our current economic system provides many options that attempt to simply replace inorganic, gas-guzzling plastic items with organic, electric, natural ones. The gas-powered car is now an electric car, regular milk is now organic milk, and we replace our incandescent light bulbs with LEDs. The many problems with trying to bootstrap our way to sustainability include green products are expensive and harder to obtain than conventional products, leading to the exclusion of too many people to make a meaningful sustainability impact at scale. Green products still take a lot of energy and resources to create. Green disposal methods for the green product waste do not exist at the scale needed to make a significant sustainability impact. And green products do not require major lifestyle changes, which are necessary to bring about true sustainability. Because options for a greener lifestyle exist in the market, our society creates a culture of shame around those who do not or cannot participate, which leaves many people resentful and behind. Many Americans cannot afford to purchase the products labeled sustainable or organic. When people are scrambling to survive and meet their basic needs, they do not have the time or energy to consider how their actions impact the earth and are not able to think about or participate in new ways of approaching sustainability. Rather than shaming people for trying to survive, we must meet them where they are and collaborate on attainable sustainability practices for everyone. My life is full of sustainability lessons. My life and what I've witnessed are proof that more effective approaches to sustainability are not being considered in this critical moment we are living in. Despite being warned by multiple career counselors that I should not quit frustrating jobs or have any gaps in my resume, I have rotated through four professional environmental gigs after learning on the job that they were hurting the earth while hurting my mental and physical health too. Although my path has been challenging and many people, including myself, have questioned my sanity, I've always had a reason for changing jobs and my life is more sustainable for it. I am a Texas environmental lawyer turned planner with over 15 years of experience studying and practicing environmental law in the private, nonprofit, and government sectors. I have worked for and negotiated with stakeholders representing multiple sides of water, air, land, wildlife, waste, and climate issues in New York, Texas, Virginia, Oregon, Alaska, and the U.S. Migratory Flyway, which encompasses eight Midwestern states. I also worked as a full-time grant writer for a Buffalo nonprofit attempting to do sustainability work. Unfortunately, I quit that job in disgust and heartbreak after slowly discovering that it could not fully implement the sustainability solutions it claimed to be an expert on, while tensions around grants and finances created a dysfunctional workplace. Before entering the workforce, I studied all aspects of environmental science, policy, ethics, and management in college and law school. As an undergraduate natural resources student at Cornell University, I did my best to learn everything I could about how people manage and relate to the natural world. 
During my three years at the University of Texas School of Law in Austin, I deeply studied administrative and environmental law, which I still apply to all of my work today. Understanding environmental issues and how the law intersects with them is necessary for us all to move forward in a more sustainable way, but facing what has already happened and future predictions is not for the faint of heart. Many times my grief and overwhelm around environmental devastation and its effects on people in the earth have been so great that I've wanted to give up my career addressing environmental issues altogether and pursue my fantasy job as a florist. It's been hard to be behind the scenes witnessing how much time, money, and work it takes to implement our ineffective and often violent approaches to using the earth's resources for our own benefit without consideration of the long-term consequences. Despite the challenges, I'm still in the game as a full-time planner. I'm committed to sharing my experiences and knowledge through this book because I know so much about the causes, solutions, and psychology of environmental degradation, as well as potential ways to be more sustainable. I cannot walk away from this crisis that we all face because I know it so well. I've been silent about why I left my previous positions only to get a new job in a similar field, but I've always had a reason. I want to help us move forward into a future that doesn't kill us and the earth. My previous jobs did not allow me to do that in any meaningful way. Oftentimes, I was doing the opposite. My current silence is hurting me, my community, and ultimately the earth. While I've been learning about what works and does not work regarding sustainability on the job, I've also been making personal lifestyle changes that help me stay healthier and are in better alignment with the earth. Even if it's hard, I'm not going to stop pursuing a path of sustainability. Sustainability Themes This moment in which we are all living on earth is critical because despite all the terrible news about environmental degradation and climate catastrophe, all is not lost and it is not too late. I see many opportunities to change our society's grim trajectory to something more resilient and regenerative, but that requires us to stop what we are doing now, think outside of our rushed, production-focused lifestyles, and find more holistic ways to bring about sustainability. As I reflect back on my life through the lens of what I've learned from my environmental law-based education and work experiences, I know I've learned an overall sustainability lesson. The solutions and practices that will bring about healthy changes for people in the earth focus on communication, cooperation, and collaboration with one another and the earth. Communication. In order for people with different ideas, interests, and backgrounds to effectively communicate with one another, there must be a balance of talking and listening between all involved. At the moment, everyone is talking over and around each other instead of with one another about environmental degradation and sustainability. Thousands of scientific studies, reports, and news articles are available about what is happening to the earth and how it impacts humanity, but there is too little honest communication about what practices have been effective, what has not worked, and how to move forward. When it comes to communication with the earth, Western culture acts like it is impossible outside of the scientific process, but that is simply not true. Many indigenous cultures have been communicating with the earth for thousands of years, and it is possible to learn incredible amounts of information about what is happening to the plants, animals, water, and overall ecosystem of a place by being deeply present and paying attention to how nature is responding in that moment. When I see the increase in flooding, hurricanes, and wildfires each year, I grieve for the losses while receiving the message that the earth is out of alignment and desperately trying to get back to a balanced state. As we recover, it is possible to listen to these messages, change our actions, and watch how the earth responds. Cooperation and collaboration. 
Cooperation and collaboration require mutual respect and understanding between all parties and the ability to compromise individual interests for the greater good. American society struggles here because it glorifies competition, grooms its people to be individualists, and encourages the formation of nuclear families to meet human needs in isolation from one another. This is a setup that prevents us from cooperating and collaborating toward a healthy and sustainable future. For example, there is so much money in the nonprofit sector in and around climate change right now, but that also means thousands of nonprofits are competing with one another for that money instead of working together. If these organizations were set up to cooperate and not worry about where their next grant will come from, they could all focus on actually addressing the cause of climate change, industrialization, and building healthy communities instead. Cooperation and collaboration with the Earth matters too, because we all do better when the Earth is healthy and supported, and we all do worse when she is not. An entire field called biomimicry involves humans designing infrastructure, systems, and products that mimic how nature works in order to be more sustainable and resilient, which Janine M. Baines describes in her incredible book published in 1997, Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature. Unfortunately, biomimicry has not been elevated to mainstream sustainability practices. I have not encountered it much during my career, and it is not mentioned again in this book. Our current environmental practices do not cooperate or collaborate with the earth at our peril, but other approaches with indigenous roots have the potential to bring us closer to sustainability. Sustainability for all. This book is for people who recognize the global sustainability crisis, feel helpless, and want to have a better understanding of what is going on so they can show up in this moment. Unfortunately, most people of all educational backgrounds do not know how environmental laws work or impact their lives, so they cannot offer ideas on how to improve our collective sustainability situation. I will demystify how environmental laws work and don't work through the lessons I've learned as an environmental law firm lawyer, government agency lawyer, consultant, nonprofit staffer, and human trying to survive a global pandemic. I hope that by learning about our problematic environmental law and policy systems, more people will have the tools to articulate the problems and advocate for meaningful change. You'll also learn about how I've incorporated sustainability and resilience lessons into my daily living practices, which has been a focus of my life after surviving the flu in January 2013. Spending a week being so sick that I could not look at a screen or complete a thought while rolling around in my bed in a fever-induced haze completely changed who I am and how I operate in the world. I hope that sharing my personal journey and lifestyle changes while exploring environmental law and policy will inspire others who want to take small steps toward a more sustainable lifestyle but don't know where to start. This book is also for people who, like me, earn a living as an environmental professional, work in sustainability spaces, and are looking for fresh perspectives and new approaches to the work. Over the past 20 years, there has been an uptick in companies creating a new C-level position called the Chief Sustainability Officer, which the website Career Explorer defines as someone who will analyze and predict a company or institution's future outlook, present stability, and environmental impact. Many governments at all levels have been forming offices of sustainability to address the same issues in a government setting. Chief Sustainability Officers and Offices of Sustainability have existential roles to play in our society. This book offers broader perspectives about what sustainability means, how it shows up in everyday life, and how it can be fostered to bring about a healthy and sustainable future. Sustainability that meets the moment. 
My ideas on sustainability are not new. They are intended to be in line with indigenous ethics and practices, which have been trampled on and attempted to be erased by industrialists and people who want to have power over Mother Earth instead of collaborating with her. The purpose of this book is to model sustainability practices by breaking my silence after years of grinding in environmental law and policy jobs. I want us all to pause and deeply think about what it will take to make sustainability a reality in our currently unsustainable society. Thank you for reading this book and choosing to join me down the sustainability rabbit hole. I've been here a while and I'm so excited to communicate, cooperate, and collaborate with more people so we can stop competing, join forces with one another in the earth, practice resiliency, and move toward a healthy and sustainable future together. Okay, that was the introduction to Silent Seasons, Chasing Sustainability Through the Law. It's the new book that I just wrote and it's out now in paperback and as an ebook. You can get both of them on Amazon and you can also order them through a lot of local bookstores because the paperback is on Ingram Spark and the ebook is on Kobo. So a lot of local bookstores around the United States and around the world will use Ingram Spark and Kobo to order ebooks and then print on demand paperbacks. So I just checked with Talking Leaves, the local bookstore in Buffalo, and if you go to their website or you call them, they can order it, and it'll be available for pickup in their store in a few days. So I believe the same arrangement can happen with local bookstores in a lot of places. So definitely check that out. You could also contact me through my website, and I can ship you a book personally. But yeah, there's a lot of different ways to check out the book. Uh, electronically or in paperback. I'm going to keep sharing it, um, keep yeah, getting it connected to libraries, schools, things like that. And yeah, this is just the beginning. I'm really excited that you're listening. And yeah, go check out the book. Have a great week and happy fall. Thank you so much for listening to the Keeping Things Alive podcast. For more information, please visit www.keepingthingsalive.org.